Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Science of Storytelling, the podcast that explores the most unique and engaging content collaborations between publishers and advertisers. I'm Jared Grimm. This week on the show, we're chatting with Mike Rothman, CEO and co-founder of Fatherly. Mike is the face behind Fatherly. He created the publication as a way of addressing the deficit that he saw in helpful content for dads in the digital age. Last year, Fatherly partnered with Chrysler Pacifica for a campaign called The Family Car. The partnership produced advice-based content that ranged from car seat safety tips all the way to deciphering those looks that dads give in the rearview mirror. We spoke to Mike about how Fatherly came to be, their partnership with Chrysler, and the importance of publishing content created by parents for parents. Enjoy the show. Mike, thanks a lot for being on the show. Happy to be here. Yeah. I want to get started by learning a little bit about you. So could you tell us your background, how you got into this, how you're in the publishing industry? Yeah. uh, I was born in Minneapolis to a wolf biologist and a lapsed cheerleader who became a flight attendant. They didn't necessarily meet cute, but they met in Minneapolis. And then I grew up in New Jersey, uh, which is where my dad was from. Turns out uh, the wolf business isn't as lucrative as selling consumer electronics. Mm. So I grew up in New Jersey, on a prototypical New Jersey varsity jacket wearing, man jewelry uh, wearing, aspiring uh, media entrepreneur because I think very early on I had an interest in, in media. I was a video game fanatic. And so at age 13, I put together kind of a saddle-stitched yeah, paper magazine, which consisted mostly of photocopies of articles from Electronic Gaming Magazine. Uh, it wasn't kind of ennobled with the, with the word uh, curating. That didn't really come until you know much later. I was basically photocopying magazines. Right. And so that was probably the first brush with uh, media, entrepreneurship. And then in college, started a magazine, which was a bit more sophisticated uh, about celebrations, not who's out with whom wearing what, but more kind of a collection of human interest stories that were bound with this theme of celebrations from get out of jail celebrations to, you know, celebrations around personal transformations. And it was bookended by uh, coverage of new hotel bar openings in different cities around the country. Uh, And that became a custom publication for a boutique hotel group um, that we, you know, so we ended up using the boutique hotel group as a means for distribution to circumvent all of the newsstand costs, uh, which were pretty significant. Um, anyway, we ended up losing funding from the hotel sponsor. And so I went and joined a larger publishing company, uh, Hachette, which has since been sold into Hearst, but it was a publisher of probably 17 different niche titles across entertainment, across boating, women's lifestyle. And my role was to come up with new publications uh, that we can create for some of the top advertisers. So producing branded content effectively. And then, uh, you know, fast forward, you know, two years later, I ended up meeting Ben Lear, who was starting Thrillist, which was a daily newsletter for men in the time it was just New York. And with a vision of becoming a larger kind of men's lifestyle publication that married the kind of local and kind of hyper specificity of a city guide. And that was circa 2006. And so I became the first business employee at Thrillist. Mm. And what we noticed is that our founding team at Thrillist, they now had wedding bands on and babies on the way. And they were also acutely interested in 
becoming better dads, better parents, but there wasn't a digital first publication that really spoke to their needs as young parents, yeah. especially the generation that grew up with digital and social media solving seemingly all of their lifestyle and conveniences and what bigger disruption to your life than, than having a kid, as I'm sure you well know. Yeah, I have two sons. So what was out there at the time, if you, if you felt like there was this gap? Yeah, the, it, was, it was interesting. So the universe seemed to consist of kind of two different categories of media. You had kind of this anachronistic Web 1.0 desktop optimized media like Baby Center, WebMD. And then you had this vast long tail of mommy blogs, mm-hmm. uh, which were very narrow in their focus and really spoke from one person's perspective. And this is a space that generally demands a lot of high-quality information because these are some of the most high-stakes decisions you're going to make as both a consumer and as a parent, you know, deciding on what types of parental interventions you want to make at various yeah. stages of your, your kid's life. And so thought that there needed to be something that really blended science and evidence-based coverage with you know, with lifestyle, that uh, content that related to the experiences that this audience was going through. Really, the first challenge was there, this, what, there wasn't like a the deficit of information. It was actually quite the opposite. There was a glut of parenting content. And so the primary question that we wanted to solve for is, you know, can we curate what's out there? Can we boil the ocean and just find five valuable nuggets that would be relevant to an audience of dads with kids zero to two? Right. Let's just start there. Yeah. Uh, And I think that's a lesson for any, you know, budding entrepreneur is there's so many different directions in which you can go that the biggest challenge is how do you narrow your focus and, and and know that that's the right focus and then, you know, understand what success should look like. And so be honest with yourself, establish benchmarks. And so our benchmarks were looking at open rates of this email, looking at clicks per email, looking at organic growth and kind of had a 12 week window with a weekly sending frequency to determine whether this was going to be, whether what we were doing, the, the course that we were on was going to be successful. And fortunately, it, uh, it happened to be successful from the perspective of the quantitative data that we're measuring, but also probably more importantly, I had a certain spidey sense from my experience in publishing that like, oh, there's a real there there. Like we're creating yeah. content and creating service that, you know, is qualitatively valuable to people like we're hearing it from people that we didn't know this wasn't just like you know your uncle george like giving you a thumbs up it's really great what you're doing over there uh and that was that was the start right so it's got this strong mission-led idea you're starting to get some traction from an audience at what point did you realize that this was a business that was going to work um so i'd been socializing this concept with investors pretty early on um, I kind of made a point to make sure to meet as many investors as I could, uh, especially when I wasn't actively looking for anything, just to get a better sense. Like I'd never gone out and raised my beyond getting a grant from the school uh, to start this other magazine about celebrations and getting sponsorship from this initial boutique hotel. There was, I had never raised venture capital before, mm-hmm. and so it was almost an academic exercise to go and meet as many of these folks as possible in New York. Uh, just to understand how they operate, how they think, um, to get their perspective, my perspective. You know, as an operator, I think it was interesting for them as well. Now that there is this whole crop of uh, new media companies coming out built on, on top of social platforms that was attracting a lot of venture investment. So it was probably 18 months later that I was actually ready, that, I, you know, that we had a business model. And I started socializing the concept 
of Fatherly concurrently to potential marketing partners very early on as well. Um, and this is you know, relevant you know, to this conversation because I think when some folks who have never done media before want to rely on marketing and advertising dollars as a source of revenue, they think they can just kind of turn on revenue. It's a phrase you, you hear often. It doesn't really work that way. You know, unless you're, you have tremendous scale and you have programmatic business, you're still dealing with humans and human relationships. And it made sure to also you know, go out to Cincinnati to meet with Procter & Gamble to mm-hmm. socialize this concept with their internal research people, their brand people, and also check back in with them every six months. So also by the time that we were ready to do this as a business, we had already gotten some initial buy-in. So within a month of launching Fatherly, we were able to bring on our first major brand partners. We brought on uh, Plum Organics, which is part of Campbell's. We brought on Spotify. And uh, it became a break-even or better business very, very quickly. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't because we turned on revenue. I mean, the revenue switch was already turned on. Right. We just leaned into it a little bit more. Yeah. And was the... Because you'd been doing some form of branded content, it sounds like, since the beginning of your media career, did you always see that as your primary way of monetizing fatherly? Initially. Yeah. I think Native was ascendant. This is like early BuzzFeed years. And yeah. so... Uh, there's a big appetite for that type of, you know, that type of product uh, from marketers. And it felt even just like aesthetically the way to go. Like we were trying to build a much more premium brand that didn't look kind of like a, a hacky site that was just, you know, juicing programmatic revenue. And so having beautiful native ads was important just aesthetically to, you know, as we were creating first impressions with potential buyers, potential users. It turns out that Parenting as a lens to reach men, again, interestingly, hadn't really been mined before. Or if it had, it had been mined for, you know, for satire or comedy, you know, like the dopey dad trope. And and it was probably, like, offensive in some way. Like, maybe a guy would chuckle, but then he'd realize, oh, that's not me. Yeah. It's not the guys that I know. And we took a different approach. I think that approach was novel for a lot of these brands. And it was done without being overly sentimental. Yeah. Without you know referring to your child as a bundle of joy every right. paragraph, uh, it's like your kid. Yeah, I think this is the part that resonated. Uh, as I said, I'm a father, and I when I had my first kid, when me and my wife had our first kid, I remember you just have like a lot of these moments where you're looking for advice. Uh, you don't necessarily want to ask your parents; they came from another generation. Uh, I'm sure if I you know, ask my parents, they would say, well, maybe something you're not even dealing with, right? I'm like, no, I'm dealing with that. And so I'm searching for things like, why is this rash here right now? And should I go to the hospital now or can I wait it out? Uh, But I did find it interesting to start getting some advice from other fathers that just saw it maybe through a slightly different lens or or had a different uh, voice towards the same answer to the same question. So I found that really interesting. Talk a little bit about your audience. It's called Fatherly. I imagine a lot of listeners have this assumption that it is 100% fathers of children that are that are on the site. What does the actual audience look like on Fatherly? And the actual composition is 50-50 male-female. Uh, maybe varies a little bit by platform, but in aggregate, it's pretty 50-50. Uh, and I think that's because of our MO and our editorial MO you kind of touched on this is like when someone is making any kind of high stakes decision, they generally triangulate between three data points. The first is what is an unassailable expert? Like what did they have to say about this topic? 
And if it's something involving, you know, a rash, you want to hear from someone who's been, you know, a medical professional who's been dealing with this for a very long time. You also, as you mentioned, you want to talk to someone else who kind of like is in your position, who's like you, you're like same age, same, lives in the same neighborhood, perhaps. You want to see what that person did. And then you also want to kind of triangulate that with your gut. Like, you know, you have certain instincts honed over tens of thousands of years to care for this child. Like, that's a valid data point. And so you really want to blend those three. And usually once you blend those three, you get conviction on, you know, some on how to, on what to buy, how to act. And so that was, that's a very driving force for us editorially that I think informs a lot of our thinking of, of how we build fatherly. And as a result, I think that approach isn't necessarily gendered. The content is, uh, is, you know, relevant to everybody. It's also very multi-generational because of what you mentioned, you're having grandparents that are now interacting with children, uh, who, you know, they haven't been, they haven't, parented uh, children maybe for 30 years. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of macro forces that uh, are at work here that I think ultimately you know, serve as like a wind at our back. Yeah. And do you find that from branded content, one thing that I've always loved about it is this idea that you can fund additional content that might be valuable to your audience. So rather than it be, let's say, an advertisement that can take away or interrupt in the middle of it, uh, you could actually have an advertiser brand fund more content that wasn't maybe available otherwise. So I want to touch on one campaign, which was with uh, Chrysler Pacifica, uh, because to me, this is exactly what it did. It, it created, and I'll let you speak to the campaign, uh, but I do know that there was several pieces of content that were created out of this, a lot of it advice-based. So can you speak to that on how a brand can step in and, and rather than maybe take away a little bit of the, the attention, but actually add to the site? Yeah, I, I love this campaign. So Chrysler Pacifica, I think, realized that um, having a kid, um, especially parents that have children between zero and two, I think 81% are generally going to be in the market for a three-row vehicle or for a new vehicle. Um, a three-row vehicle, particularly if they have multiple children. And it was a great point of market entry. And this is an audience that we know, you know intimately well. And so uh, our proposition to them was uh, we have this editorial franchise called Family Car Week, where we're going to tackle the issue of family cars from every possible angle, from kind of the the practical, you know, evaluating the best three-row vehicles, evaluating the best uh, car seats, um, to the more whimsical, like an illustrated guide to looks that dad gives in the rearview mirror. Which was my favorite one, because (laughs) I always thought, I told my wife this, I'm like, I just need to learn my dad's looks. Right. Like the way that he can like look across a table and you just know, like, don't talk anymore. Like this is, that's it. Right. And I, I've never mastered it. I don't know. It's a whole other language. It. Yeah. So I saw that. <laughs> I, I read that one and I looked and I'm like, I'm practicing almost. I'm like, okay, right eyebrow up. That's the one. <laughs> <laughs> and you find that these are, you know, almost innate. Like you find yourself doing it yourself. Yeah. You're like, oh my God, I'm going to become my father. <laughs> <laughs> And whether it was learned behavior or it was, you know, hereditary, who knows. Uh, but so th- this was all encompassed in Family Car Week. And so it served a couple purposes. One, it brought Chrysler Pacifica front and center during a moment in which our audience was completely tuned in to family car coverage, like the most contextually relevant environment you, you can get for the brand. Uh, it was also an opportunity for them to win out uh, in SEO. Anytime someone was searching for a three-row vehicle, we really wanted to swarm 
that intent with any number of these articles uh, that, you know, that all link to the, to the family car week hub. And so it was a great opportunity for Chrysler Pacifica to you know, increase um, their search engine optimization. And, uh, and then within that, there is opportunities for branded content to talk more specifically about you know, the car, the new Pacifica itself. Uh, and so it felt very you know, full funnel and felt very contextually relevant. Uh, and it was just really engaging content. And it's content that also has a very long shelf life. How does Chrysler decide if this worked? How do you decide if this worked or not? Yeah, it, so at the outset, and this is always the challenge when you're dealing with multiple stakeholders, with a creative agency, with a media agency, with a brand team, with a comms team, uh, everyone has their own KPI. Comms team's like, well, we'd like to see some earned media pickup from this. Um, you're like, all right, well, consumer pickup or trade pickup. And so you really have to train your team well to, you know, to set the right expectations across the board, particularly for these bigger efforts. And most of these campaigns are now bigger efforts because brands want to do more with fewer publishers. Mm -hmm. And as a result, more stakeholders are involved in these publisher relationships. And so it really requires a much more sophisticated seller to, you know, to understand the different dynamics at play with agency partners, internal client partners, the relationship between the client and the agency. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's quite nuanced territory. So there is an earned media component to see if you know, we'd be able to get pickup for this, there was also, I think, a creative component. You know, is this the right type of environment? Like, we like the pitch of what this could become, but let's actually see it actualized and will we like the creative execution? So, there's a certain, you know, kind of gut test uh, creatively. Unfortunately, we were able to, you know, to meet that with flying colors. And then there is also, you know, SEO, they wanted to measure SEO improvement. Unfortunately, we were able to prove that as well. There's uh, click through on a lot of the like lower funnel um, ad products, like actually showing the car itself. Yeah. And so it's a combination of all of those things. And fortunately, we were able to check all of those boxes off. And, you know, the, the great thing about the parenting market is that it's uh, an ever filling bucket. And so next year, there's going to be another 4 million people who are going to be in the market mm. for a three row vehicle again. Yeah. So you hope that you can replicate this concept over and over with that that partner. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm curious about, you've been in the media industry for a long time since you were a kid, it sounds like before they called it curating. Right. Uh, uh, what do you, and then, and you were raising money or looking, talking to investors at a, what I call a very like frothy time in, right. in digital. I mean, Vox was raising money. Buzzfeed was raising money. Uh, Thrillist was raising money and there was money going towards, towards this industry. And I don't know if we would know now, like if we look now at the last year, it's been the opposite of a bloodbath of many of the same companies that were able to raise at that time. You also have this idea of going, raising all that money, going huge scale to turn on the revenue taps, as you say, uh, and some of that never came to fruition. So can you talk about your view on the overall industry, just being through that time and seeing where we're at now? Yeah. So I always thought that there are, Two disruptive forces at play, um, dating back to you know this period like 2014, 2015. I think the first disruptive force is well documented. That's platform disintermediation. You know, I think publishers kind of knew what they were getting into. Some were sleeping with one eye open, some had both eyes closed, and they thought they can just scale on top of these platforms. And and some have you know Group Nine, which really has placed a big bet on platforms, like actually continues to do well. But I think that works when you're already at a certain scale. 
you have a certain business that's already you know, fairly mature. And that, I think, invited a second disruptive force, which is venture capital and kind of venture capital ex- uh, expectations on these media businesses because they saw these you know, geometric growth curves, which resemble the types of growth curves that they like to see in businesses that they invest in that can deliver venture style, you know, 10x returns in five to seven years. And I think what happened is that the uh, venture style growth in media proved to be a bit of a fantasy, or at least it was very ephemeral, because they realized that, you know, Facebook giveth and Facebook taketh away. And once Facebook taketh away, you know, a lot of these publishers were kind of SOL, and you can't really achieve that kind of hockey stick like growth. In media, just as a general principle, it doesn't you know, really happen that way. I think media tends to grow much more linearly. It's much more of a hard slog. It's uh, good taste over time at scale. Yeah, and I, I read an article on Neiman Lab that you did, and this was in May 2017. Uh, and you said in that, in that interview that you were already trying to move away from being so dependent on Facebook. And this is before Facebook. And and I think you're quoted in there saying that in case there's changes in the algorithm. And this is before it was publicly known that there was changes happening, uh, big changes happened the following year. You had started to diversify a little bit more into e-newsletters, which by the sounds of it, listening to your career, I mean, that's where Fatherly started was this idea right. of an e-newsletter. You came from Thrillist, which started as an e-newsletter. Uh, were you seeing the writing on the wall at that time from your analytics or were you just seeing that this was a potential threat to your business? Yeah, I think it was more of just a strategic, it was more strategic conviction than anything else. Uh, you know, you'd heard whispers talking to people at Facebook, even people within Facebook didn't really have a consistent story. It's like the right hand didn't really know what the left was doing. Yeah. Uh, but we made a point of, you know, cultivating relationships there and trying to talk to them as often as possible. But it just didn't make practical sense that you know, we, we had these like, videos that would achieve 500 or 50 million or 100 million views on almost a weekly basis, which is giving you like a Super Bowl size audience every other week for free. And like that, that was great. It just didn't feel very sustainable. Mm. Um, And so having a newsletter, which is really a direct tether to a consumer, um, kind of unmediated from a platform always felt like just a, I don't know, kind of like a safe harbor in case anything ever you know, went wrong. And so we tried to use email capture as the bottom of our funnel, any, you know, social views as kind of a, you know, upper funnel awareness uh, tactic. And it was effective for a time. And now, you know, even probably a year and a year and a half ago is when we really started a concerted effort around diversification, uh, focusing on email, focusing on SEO, you know, what you consider basic blocking and tackling. Uh, and it's paid off. It's paid off where we really don't rely. You know, we see you know, decent traffic coming from social platforms, but if one of those platforms shut off, it wouldn't hurt our business. Mm-hmm. I also think there's a smaller denominator of publishers competing for our audience's attention. You know, as all these other you know big viral publishers uh, have kind of left the building, there's less competition for attention in the newsfeed. All of our content has always been very high quality. Any public statements Facebook has made has been to favor high quality content. So I think we've always just generally been swimming in the kind of the right waters. Right. And so you've diversified the way that your audience gets to you. What about revenue wise? Have you needed to diversify revenue beyond advertising? Have you looked at that? 
Uh, we are. I think that's much more of a focus this year. That's a much. That, it probably takes as long. I mean, it's. We anticipate that it'll take twenty-four to thirty-six months for the composition of revenue to change more meaningfully from what it is now, which is, you know, where the vast majority of of, of revenue comes from advertising. Because effectively, you're inventing a, a new business. You can't just yada yada that. We actually have a uh, kind of a, a tactical working group called Fatherly Labs internally, consisting of a product manager, the audience development person, uh, content person, testing out a couple of new concepts, um, using a lot of what I learned at Betaworks, like these kind of 90-day sprints, mm-hmm. pulling our users, you know, pulling our internal team about what we think this audience wants. You know, as, as we look at like direct-to-consumer monetization, uh, I don't think paid subscriptions is in the card, just kind of spoil alert. Um but testing products that we might that we might launch, and then launching a whole bunch of you know, campaigns on Facebook and Instagram with like six hundred different creatives that are testing different price points, different packaging, different merchandising, etc., to see if we can get you know any kind of data that any of these new ideas that we think this audience wants, or they, they tell us that they want, and you know will they actually put their credit card where their mouth is? So, to speak. so actually, are you talking about actually producing, manufacturing items for your audience? under the fatherly brand or taking existing ones and, and generating e-commerce revenue off of them? Uh, it's both. So we have an, we just hired a wonderful affiliate commerce editor. So that becomes more of a focus, but ultimately that's going to be, that growth is kind of, uh, you know, concomitant with any SEO growth. Like we see that those generally run in lockstep, yeah. like affiliate and SEO. Um, we've had a couple of really big affiliate hits, but that's tied to really big SEO hits, almost mm-hmm. one-to-one. Yeah. This is, it's kind of a dual process where we have the marketing team and the content team coming up with ideas. And then we have the product team in parallel doing like a feasibility analysis of like, can we actually produce the thing itself? Whether it, you know, it may have the fatherly brand on it, may not. We're also looking at different joint ventures with other larger companies and let's say the toy space where we can lend our expertise, our knowledge of what parents want. So we have this internal group called Fatherly IQ, mm-hmm. uh, which is the team that gave us the insight that 80% of families you know, with kids zero to two are in the market for a new vehicle. Uh, and we use that, you know, their insights to power uh, some of these direct-to-consumer efforts that like, hey, parents are saying that they want, uh, you know, let's say like a, a new parenting kits or like a solution to the question, what should I get the new dad in my life? Mm-hmm. And we're, you know, on one hand, the marketing team is testing, is there an audience here? You know, will they buy at this price point? The product team is figuring out how we build this. Uh, one of the other things that we learned from Father IQ is that in the wind, this is probably no surprise to parents with kids in living in cities where there's harsh winters, that it's like really hard on the weekends to find uh, stuff to do with your kid. And we saw that in the wake of Toys R Us closing, parents were looking for some place to, you know, play with toys outside of like a friend's home or outside of like a community play space. And so we wanted to build like a big democratic play space for kids to discover toys and to play with toys. And we ended up creating this concept called the fatherly playroom, which probably one of the best things we've ever done as a company uh, for a host of reasons, but it was a physical expression of the fatherly brand that brought the hundred best toys of 2018 to life as selected by our editors so we had them all on display for kids not just to look at, but to play with. We partnered with about 15 different local activity providers to have wall-to-wall programming where kids can do everything from like you know baby yoga to music classes to language classes. 
And it was, again, in essence, like a real expression of what fatherly was all about. And parents and kids just went absolutely bananas. Uh, It was profitable based on sponsorship revenue. So that's, you know, ultimately how it was propped up. We didn't charge consumers anything. We didn't charge merchants anything. We barely emphasized direct commerce, which is a much bigger opportunity for us moving forward. Yeah. And uh, one final question. We ask everyone what their, we have a book club. And so we ask everyone what their favorite book is. I'm going to make yours a little bit more specific. Do you have a, a favorite book for new fathers? Well, we're working on one. Mm. So <laughs> one coming soon that <laughs> will be your favorite. Soon. Uh, yes. Uh, actually the, the one that I can talk about is we have a franchise called my father, the, which is a series of as told two stories from the sons and daughters of famous dads, everyone from John Wayne's son, Muhammad Ali's daughter, Michael Jordan's son, Pablo Escobar's son, really intimate, uh, portraits of, of, of men that the public knew, but didn't necessarily know, you know, these more you know, intimate stories. Uh, it's going to be a big kind of coffee table book replete with personal mementos that may not have been seen before. Uh, it's coming out next year, but something that we're really excited about internally. That's great. Well, thanks a lot for being on the program, Mike. No, great to be it. here. Yeah, it's great. The Science of Storytelling is a podcast by Pressboard. It's hosted by Jared Grimm with design by Phil Chung and production by me, Leah Bjornsson. If you like the show, please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or sign up for our monthly newsletter. Visit PressBoardMedia.com to learn more.